finally, Will Swaim. This is an episode of Finally, the podcast from Michael Furtick. I'm joined today by a very interesting and very special guest, Will Swaim of the California Policy Center, which is one of the most impactful nonprofit initiatives that you probably have never heard of. Will has been a California person for quite some time. He worked as a journalist for much of his career. He will have an opportunity to correct this bio in any way he wishes. As you know, is my practice here on Finally the Podcast. But then at some point, he decided to become active in politics himself. For a long time, he was not only a journalist, but also responsible for protecting integrity and the interests of journalism and journalists. And he'll tell us more about that. But again, lately, he's been working as someone who is trying to influence the political landscape in California very concretely. The California Policy Center, in a nutshell, seeks to make members of unions, public sector unions in California, aware of their rights that they need not pay dues if they do not wish to. This comes from a Supreme Court case that we'll discuss called Genesis. And this right of public sector union members to benefit from or participate in or remain members of unions without having to pay their annual dues, which can be quite steep, was a landmark ruling from, I think, 2017. Will and his team at the California Policy Center have had a remarkable impact on the political landscape already and have sent some seismic tremors coursing through the halls of Sacramento and the union halls of major cities in California, perhaps especially the Los Angeles Unified School District. Will Swaim, welcome to the podcast. What a pleasure to see you again. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Will, the first thing is that you have a chance to edit, amend, amplify, correct, deny or affirm anything you wish from the bio I just gave you. Uh, no, I think, I think you've got it generally right. There's one phrase that I think you'll agree in retrospect we could sharpen just a wee bit, and that is that there wasn't a point when I was a journalist that I decided to become political uh, because of my undergrad experience, my graduate school experience. I had become a Marxist alongside becoming a wait, journalist. This is, this is super duper good. Wait, wait. I, I really want this. This journey is like half the interview. So wait, don't jump sure. the gun. Um, okay. So my, my point is I was always political. You were a journalist who was also an activist. Is that what you're trying to say? The latter. Yeah. Journalist okay. slash activist. Always. Okay. From the okay. beginning. Okay. So, so in your own words, give us the bumper sticker, please, on California Policy Center, because I'm going to start with where you are now, and then we'll go back to your days as a Marxist. Um, and then how the heck did you get here, right? So uh, let's give me the bumper sticker so the audience can hear what it is in your own words that the California Policy Center does and why it exists. Sure. Uh, California Policy Center is a 501c3. That's a convoluted IRS description that just means we're a charitable organization. We're engaged in public education. And by public education, we mean educating the public on the issues of the day. 
And our assessment at California Policy Center, which uh, is just celebrating this month our 10th anniversary, we were founded in 2013, our assessment has always been that the problem in California is uniquely the problem of government unions, and that these are the most powerful political influences, influencers rather, in the state. They raise and spend somewhere in the neighborhood of a billion dollars per year. That's $2 billion with a B every election cycle. Oof. And then until we really are able to reform the role of these political organizations, which have actually monopolized the control of the government workspace. And I'm talking about cops, firefighters, teachers, people who work in the Department of Motor Vehicles, who drive school buses. All of these union members contribute a billion per year. And then that money is used to finance the campaigns of politicians who, once they get into power in California, whether it's the governor, a state assembly member, a city council member, once those candidates are elected with union money, they owe the unions. And they turn around and they return the favor in the form of greater uh, greater benefits, greater pay, greater control over the workspace. And uh, the result is that reform is, has become nearly impossible. So if you want to understand why California is in the fix it's in, it, we have identified that the key problem is the problem of government unions. Not, not alone. There are other problems. But that's what California Policy Center focuses on. Okay. All right. So we're going to come back to every element of that um, in just a few minutes. But let's now that you've articulated where you are now and why you get up in the morning now, let's say, professionally, Let's go back because when you and I have met over the years, one of the things that we came to understand about each other very fast was something I think that many people like us have come to understand about one another in first meetings. Meaning I was raised in a very liberal, perhaps even pinko household in the Upper West Side of New York City. I don't know how, how you were raised, but and we'll get there in a second, but you became, at some point in your life, a self-described Marxist, you just said. And many people have found themselves sort of surprised as to where they are now. Um, um, and they've been on a journey that went from left or very left to I don't recognize the left to maybe I'm a libertarian, maybe I'm right of center, or maybe I'm center left or maybe now they're right wing, but this journey is now very familiar. And many of, many of my listeners, I believe, have been on similar journeys. They're kind of, um, let's say, libertarian curious or, right, or center right curious, or some are affirmatively right, some are affirmatively left, but at least they are interested in this discourse. So let's come back to you. Just tell us a little bit about how to the extent you're willing, how you grew up, where you grew up, what was the politics of your upbringing, how you became, by your own words, a Marxist, and then how that journey evolved over time. Well, thanks for asking. Um, I was raised in a, in a very conservative South Orange County home. And for those who don't know Orange County, it used to be called, uh, it, we were referred to as the place behind the orange curtain. It was very conservative. And in the 1960s, when I say conservative, I don't just mean you know, like politely uh, country club Republican, although that's how I was raised. Uh, Orange County in the 1960s was a place that was dominated by the, the Barry Goldwater folks, you know, were very libertarian. And then... I don't even know if you could call it to their right, almost off the political spectrum, were John Birchers. 
Um, oh wow! Who, okay. Yeah, oh, wow. I mean, this is this is a place where it's been well documented that the the John Birch Society was fairly powerful until the rise of the more I'll say Republicans that I would recognize as legitimately Republican conservative constitutional conservatives. So anyway, I was raised in that environment late nineteen sixties. Just for those who don't know, John, John Birch was sort of could have anti-communist but they sometimes would might be called paleo conservative or ultra conservative right um and there's a guy named bob welch right who was um who was uh sort of the main um founder um and it's from massachusetts interestingly um an good organization memory from, wow yeah from yes. massachusetts <clears throat> but but it became a midwestern phenomenon and um yeah, I think I think that John Birch is probably the John Birch Society was probably what Ronald Reagan, when he was president, was referring to when he quipped very famously, sometimes our right hand does not know what our extreme right hand is doing. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and and so that's the that I, I did not know that Orange County was a was a John Birch influenced place, but it doesn't surprise me. It was a it was and still is a conservative place politically in California. But you grew up in the in the '60s version of that, which would have been much more conservative then. Right, right, yeah. Um, and, and we don't have to go down the rabbit hole if you'd prefer not to. But the migration patterns in California are absolutely fun, just fascinating to me historically. And one of those, of course, is the World War II, uh, let's say, introduction to California of hundreds of thousands of Marines and. U.S. soldiers yeah. who come to California to, you yeah. know, to work at the major bases like Camp Pendleton, for instance, which is in northern San Diego County. And uh, their experience here, you know, these, these are kids from the Midwest and their experience of California at that time is, my gosh, you can pick an orange on January 1st and the temperature is 72 degrees. I am not going back to Iowa. Right. And so a lot of these guys filter through. They go to the Pacific. They fight in the war. They come back and they say, I'm, you know, I'm staying here. Uh, they bring their families out. Uh, they enter the gigantic, the enormous, the booming 1960s and 70s aerospace industry. Sure. And right. the result is you get a lot of these settlers who bring with them, settlers, I call them. I'm sorry. I know that's now a politically uh, controversial a statement. <laughs> <laughs> they these come are non-colonizers <laughs> yeah, who are right. allowed to come. They are invited right. by the government. Voluntarily. Right? forced to come through the that's military right. service. Right. Okay. Yes. So long story short, they end up here and they bring their Midwestern politics. And I, I grew up in a family that, you know, my, my, my paternal grandmother's name was Elena Luisa Malera. Her family was uh, Mexican, Spanish, American, depends on who you ask. Uh, but they can trace their roots in California back to 1769. And then more recently, my maternal grandfather was a guy who used to brag that he came to the United States from England with nine fingers and no hearing. And in both cases, the, you know, these families merge like this mighty river alongside all these people pouring in from the Midwest post-World War II. And I'm raised in a nice, conservative, Catholic South Orange County family. Uh, and uh, I've got a dad who's a Democrat but who does not vote for Democrats. I've got a mom who's a Republican and very moderate. Um, and I want to be a priest. And this is where the story takes its turn toward Marxism. I am convinced I'm going to be a Catholic priest. I am one of those boys. So uh, my parents persuade me to spend just one year. They plead with me as I'm a high school senior. Please just spend one year in a major university so that you understand what the real world is like before you catapult yourself into seminary and presume to tell other people how to live their lives. 
So I, I got accepted to the University of Southern California's theology program. I go there to study theology and journalism, by the way, because that's important for my, my you story. you become a liberation theologist? That's right. Yeah. Oh, good, my goodness. Good memory. Yeah. Yeah. So no, the, I just, for, I just, just, that's the phrase, right? For that's um, yes. The current the current pope came up as a liberation theologist. Did that's you know? correct. As did yeah. I. So for your that's, listeners who you. aren't familiar, <laughs> I, I, I know you know something about liberation theology. But no, let's explain. For it. those let's who don't know, it. pardon. Let's explain it, please. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So liberation theology is a movement among primarily Catholics, but not only, but primarily Catholics and primarily those in the third world and especially those in Latin America. And the idea in liberation theology is that you have to read the gospel through the lens of class and colonization. And that what Jesus is really talking about is abundantly clear, if you do that. The Gospels, the Old Testament, they all lead us in the direction of a God who has taken the side of the poor in a war against the rich. It is a infamously blasphemous <laughs> trans, uh, translation of the, of the, the peacekeeper. Intersectional Bible study. Yes. Yeah. And this is in the late 70s. So by the time I hit the theology program at USC in the fall of 1978, liberation theology is coursing through the theology department and, and several other departments, political science and the you know liberal arts school in general. Oof. And the result for me is just eye-opening. The tremendous Oof. guilt with which Catholics and Jews are born anyway, um, you know, we just carry around. I don't, I, I don't want to caricature too much anybody else's experience, but I can tell you every Catholic I know and every Jew I know, we all share this guilt in common. Oof. Just is levered open in me when I enter this this program in theology and start reading the gospel according to the liberation theologians. My goodness. And I, I, um, I very quickly abandon the notion that I'm going to be a priest in favor of an activist. I join a punk band. I shave my hair into a mohawk. I get my ear pierced. Um, while I we're am... here, while we're here, did you lose faith in God? Um, uh, just as a small sidebar, because you were going to be a priest, um, did you lose faith, or did there come a time when you came to feel or believe that? Um, liberation, activism, Marxism through action or music or whatever other mechanism of expression would be more authentic to you or more effective than the priesthood? Was it a push or a pull? Uh, it's all of those things. That is such a great question. Uh, first of all, I'll just say that, you know, one night I walked up to the top of my dormitory my freshman year and I looked up into the starry, starry sky and I said, and, 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 you know, we're adults now. We'll look back on this young child, 18, 19 years old, standing on a rooftop in south central Los Angeles and saying with no sense of irony, God, I don't believe in you. Um, you I know, love that story. Uh, you know, so yeah. much of what I try to do in this podcast literally is try to uncover extremely pivotal private moments that may that some people have never related before. Maybe a story you've told many times in your life. Maybe it's not. But I think that so it's not. You're shaking your head no. So correct. You um, are correct. It is not. And and I, I believe that so many impactful people and and people like who maybe just live more quiet lives have had signal moments like this that they rarely talk about, but were really signal and they're age appropriate. They have different, you know, qualities and dramatic profiles in tableaus associated with them. But I love that moment. So you're you're standing on the top of the roof. You got to the roof. And you, this young would-be priest in training who's agreed 
to go to the school of Mammon because mom and dad told me to, right? <laughs> uh, you're looking up at God and saying, I'm done with you. Yes. Right? And yes. I'm going to go work the, work the streets. That's, that was that's right. your work. Fantastic. Yes. Okay, that's, so that's, that's when you became an, that's when you declared yourself an activist and not a religious person. A, a clarity that's person. right. And, and I, and it always, you know, I, I want to say that, you know, there's a line from C.S. Lewis where he says, we're all being chased by the hounds of heaven. And Oof. they, you know, I was raised with faith and it is wired into me. And so even in that moment, I am praying to a God, if you will, who I say I don't believe in, but my actions prove otherwise in that very same moment, the performative contradiction of that experience, I guess we might call it. And um, I would tell people after that night, I started to tell people that Christ led me to Marx. Um, and I really started diving into just pure Marxist theory as a freshman. And I joined the Communist Party USA. I worked with a group called the Catholic you Worker. You were a card-carrying communist. Well, we didn't have cards, but yeah, I get the point. Yes. I, wow. I, I went to our regular meetings. I gave. Um, I, you know, the, the whole thing broke down for me fairly quickly because okay. you can imagine— 1979, you're going to meetings of CPUSA and they're talking about armed revolt and getting into the ghetto and talking to black people about their experience. And I'm a white kid from South Orange County talking to black people about so just quote, important, unquote, their experience. Important to note, you said that you came from Hispanic heritage. You consider yourself white? Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah, okay, and, and not for right. any reasons of important ethnic just identity. Just but, curious. Yeah. Just curious. You're allowed to consider yourself whatever you want. I'm just curious. Yep. Yeah, thank you. Well, in that case, I'm also a woman. So, okay. um, <laughs> fair enough. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, yep, she her. So, okay, she her. Yep, uh, it was a, it was a, you know, it was a, just a. It's a joke in movies, of course, now that if two people find themselves engaged in a relationship, at one point one of them says that they experimented in college, and it always means with their gender. But in my case, it was experimenting, trying on the clothes of a, a kind of a radical leftism. That as I got older, I appreciated the sort of Freudian insight that I was probably at war with my father, not necessarily for the affection of my mother, but I was at war with these people. You know, I was raised in a very strict home. The lid came off and I was going to run about as far from my childhood experience as I could. I stopped going to mass. I when I attended mass, it was with a group of anarchist Catholics. And uh, I just slowly just shed even that uh, that mantle. Catholics, but they sound like a hoot. Oh, they're called the Catholic Worker, and I truly, truly respect them. You and I could talk for hours about the, you know, the Dorothy Day and uh, oh, Peter okay. Mar Got Moran. It. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got these it. are okay. Okay. Yeah. So we used to work down in uh, Skid Row in L.A. and uh, do uh -huh. meals for the homeless, and um, it was it was a great experience, and I still love and revere these people because they don't take government money. They're not trying to impose any kind of policy on other people, they're just there to serve in these homes. And I found that very, and still find that a wonderfully small L libertarian response to the problems of faith and government failure. I think that's um, important. I think that's important to note. So many of the most generous philanthropic people uh, in the United States are um, socially conservative and politically conservative. They just don't want the government to do the work for, to, to, to do it. They want to use their dollars and their dollars that they don't want to be spending on tax. They want to use those dollars instead of philanthropically directing them the way they wish to. I believe the most consistently philanthropic part of the United States is the religious Midwest um, still. Uh, and so 
many people on the left who don't think about these things or don't spend a lot of time with conservative, socially conservative people or politically conservative people misapprehend this. They believe that liberals are more generous. In fact, on balance, they're not. They, they choose to give through something called tax and government, let's say. But, um, but the, the philanthropic instinct is very strong among not just church-going, but church-going um, politically right-wing people. Okay, so how long were you calling yourself or thinking of yourself as a big M or little M Marxist? Oh my gosh, that went on for almost 20 years. Oh uh, my sincerely. goodness. Yeah. So because you well, said- Let's, let's call it 15. But you said it passed fairly quickly. 15 years is not so fast to me. No, I mean, it's membership in the Communist Party formally. Oh, I see. Lasted okay, so, just- so Aspirational just Marxism, 15 years. Communist Party activism, a couple years. Yeah, it was difficult to sit in these meetings with these people and talk about the differences between, you know, the Bolsheviks and Mensheviks and Trotsky and Stalin and defending Mao and that sort of thing. It was just like it was terrible. Right. And uh, the personal hygiene of these people, the dysfunctionality in their own <laughs> lives said something to me as a kid who, you know, again, I was I was the, today we would call it privileged. I was privileged to grow up in a family with lots of grandparents, with my two parents, with my mom in the house. When I got home from school every day, I was lucky. This is such a gift. You know, and at the time, you don't see it as a gift. You see it as oppressive. Do, do, do you believe that this background of yours with this very vivid description of um, the people who might have been then later at some point clean for Gene, right? Um, the, the kind of super lefty students and graduates or wannabe students, California kids in this period with the personal hygiene challenges that you describe and so forth, and the, and the aspirational uh, political activism. Do you believe it gives you insight into the current college DEI kind of woke community, at least as, as many of us might perceive them from the outside, or do you think it's a different breed? Do you think it's pretty much a, 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 a you know, redux of what you've seen with some TikTok enhancements? I think it was ever thus. I, I you know, I, 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 the, the professors that I uh, met when I got into graduate school, which is also part of my story, I leave undergrad at SC with degrees in theology and journalism, and I go on to grad school at the University of California, Irvine, where I study Marxist theory alongside uh, U.S. history. Amazing. And, um, Amazing. yeah, and it's that experience also that sort of just shapes this, you know, I, I call it my, my highbrow period of Marxism that, you know, I didn't really talk about armed, you know, arming ourselves against the, you know, the elites or, you know, killing the bourgeoisie. But I was certainly into, you know, like the liberation movements in El Salvador, the FMLN, the FSLN in, in Nicaragua, the Sandinistas. In it. Oh, yeah. You were in it. Um, yeah, we brought these speakers to campus. Yeah, as graduate students, tremendously activists, speaking from warehouses of ignorance about everything. I don't think anyone in my history program had ever read the Federalist Papers or knew what the Constitution's purpose really was. Incredible. Unlike me, most of my uh, my peer group, my cohort, as we called it, were not uh, religiously trained in any way at all. Uh, and they found my fascination with religiosity just kind of queer. I'm sorry, that's a new word too. I mean, they, they found it different and weird. Odd. Um, but Odd, thank you. And my master's thesis was on um, how to read 
the rise of church controversies in New England as, you know, sort of forerunners or parallel paths on the fight between Marxism and capitalism, mm. uh, between socialism and capitalism. And so I studied, you know, sermons and particular church fights and looked mm. at the really clear, you know, the, the, there's always been a tension in the U.S. between small D Democrats and small R Republicans, you know, the people who believe in a really kind of one size fits all big government kind of project and the egalitarianism of all people. And I saw that in those sermons. Um, and then, you know, you have the others who say, well, well, wait a minute, I've got property rights here, too. So anyway, I wrote my master's thesis on I that. I think you're I think you're on to something very important. But while we have you there, there is because you're you're doing a kind of intellectual political analysis that is exceptionally important and still foreign to most people, including thinking educated people in the United States. There's another axis that I think I want to try and with you and see if you see if it speaks to you, because I think you're right on little d, little r axis of, of, of distinction that you just outlined. There's another one I'd like to try on with you, which is the, the little r conservatives, the little r Republicans do not believe in the perfectibility of the union or the perfectibility of man or humans, whereas the little d Democrats really do. They believe that we can keep working on it and polishing on it and make people in the project perfect and have a perfect outcome. And I think that's a fundamental difference between... Um, kind of little L left and little R right in American politics. Do you, does that speak to you or not? It, no, exactly. And maybe I'm enthusiastic about this idea and say that you're right because it's exactly what I think. I, I mm. came to believe that the a, a characteristic or a, a feature of conservatism and, you know, or libertarianism even is the imperfectibility of mankind, that we have a tragic view of our existence. And mine is informed by religiosity to this day. You know, there's this Catholic sense that, and, and, and I, I'm not saying it's unique to Catholics by any stretch. I think Jews share this, evangelicals. Um, can't say about Islam and no offense intended, but I just don't know. Uh, but this tragic view of our existence that that the human person is vulnerable to sin of all kinds that every human being is is corruptible and and that we're corrupted that we will do bad and stupid things um, and that is as you point out absolutely at the antipodes of the uh, the progressive claim that if you just twist the knobs in the right way the knobs of government policy and pull the right levers then you're going to pop out all these perfect human beings and they're going to be great um, I love to tell the story when I'm talking to uh, school board members out here in California. The, the fourth director, superintendent of public education in California, wrote this very famous essay in which he told parents, mind your own business. Once your kid goes into the schoolhouse, that child is ours. And when that child graduates from, you know, whatever level they graduate from in 1863 when he's writing this, uh, when that kid graduates, that person becomes the property of the state. This is the progressive notion that we are all just here to serve the state. Very Hegelian, right? It comes straight out of that that sort of German philosophical notion that we're just here as creatures of the state. And as smaller Republicans, uh, as conservatives, as libertarians, I think we recognize the inherent tragedy, the fact that this side of glory, there's there's not going to be human perfection. Uh, we just have to look around the world today. It's a remarkable. It's a remarkable... Uh, further exegesis of what I was talking about. Thank you for that take. Okay, coming back to the main thrust, you are at some point 
at some point you're starting to doubt yourself. You're a Marxist, you've been a communist, you're now back to being a regular highbrow Marxist um, or an irregular highbrow Marxist. At what point uh, in this, let's say you said 15 years, plus minus 15 years, at what point and why do you become doubtful of these strenuously held, fervently held opinions and what how does that doubt emerge and evolve? Is it fast, slow? What stimulates it? Was it a girl? Was it a class? Was it an incident? What happened? It was slow. And uh, I wish that I could tell you that it was uh, Saul on the road to Damascus getting knocked off his mule <laughs> okay. by, uh, by the Lord and then spoken to in very direct ways by God. Um, it was slow. I took... Lots of nudging. I, I, you know, the image that occurs to me is a, a, a cargo ship adrift at sea with tugboats trying to nudge it back toward port slowly, slowly over time. Um, huh. I, I can tell you a few of the, the quick highlights, but one of them is I begin in the late 80s to go to work for the Democratic Party here in Orange County. And I work especially closely with a uh, the mayor of my, my town, Irvine, and is Part of my job in politics, it's uh, my job is to basically make sure that every Democratic candidate has the support of cops, firefighters, and teachers. These are the three key groups of unions that you want behind you as a candidate. Cops, firefighters, a, and teachers. Okay. That's right. A, uh, you want them because they are widely publicly revered in, in California in the late 80s, cops, firefighters, and teachers. And B, because, because and, in, and in addition to their, their widespread popularity, they bring cash, loads, just mm. buckets of campaign cash. And so to get your picture taken with these people for your campaign brochures back in the late 80s and to get their money on top of that, mm. this is everything. Mm. You want their endorsement, you want their cash. What do you have to give in exchange? Well, that's, that's what happened to me. It was uh, 1988, I believe. I go with the mayor. We're driving in his Volvo. What else would you drive in Irvine if you're a progressive Democrat? You're driving your Volvo. Love Volvos, by the way. No offense to the car company. We're driving to go meet with the police union. This is my first meeting with the cops ever. And um, what? Give us a I'm year. Si 1988. Oh, okay, 88. Got it. Yeah. So I'm 28 years old. I'm working with the Dems. I'm still a graduate student, by the way, but part-time I'm now working for a nonprofit that helps uh, candidates, educate candidates, and then I'm working for a direct political campaign group separately from that. And I take, I, I, I'm going with this candidate who is very experienced, and he's going to teach me how to work with the unions. And I'm, I'm sitting mm -hmm. there. I can remember steaming. I'm sitting in this passenger seat, and I'm just frustrated. Like, And I, I said something like, we're going to go try to make common cause with the jackbooted thugs of the bourgeoisie. You've got to be kidding me. You're this referring guy was here a, to police officers. The police officers, yeah. So you're I mean, you're I'm, objecting. I'm, you're talking to the mayor. You're a Democrat, and you're saying, look, I'm supposed to. I know that in this job, I've been tasked with getting on side these three holy trinity unions, and you object. You say... The police are so-called jackbooted uh, shock troops thugs. of the bourgeoisie yeah. thugs. Uh, you know, uh, far be it from from me to participate in this effort to get them on side. That's what you're saying to your 
your candidate, the guy you work for. Yeah, my candidate, and my candidate is a very experienced guy who comes out of the Berkeley free speech movement, goes to Harvard Law, you'll appreciate those facts, uh, is director of the UCLA uh, School of Public Health. Um, he is friends with Tom Hayden and Jane Fonda. I mean, this is a guy okay. with deep political roots, and he yeah. knows a thing or two. So he's, yeah. you know, he's wise. I, he is my, he's wise. yes, he, yeah, he's my Obi-Wan Kenobi of the left. So I'm sitting there in his passenger seat and I'm complaining about meeting with the cops and I don't want to talk to them and I don't like them and I don't trust them and they're bad people and they shoot black people in the face. I mean, this is, you know, late eighties. And, um, he says, you know, something to the effect of watch and learn. So we pull up, we walk inside the union headquarters. There's three cops they are sitting at a desk, a little bit of small talk. We all sit down. We have little cups of styrofoam coffee, uh, little styrofoam cups of coffee. And, um, I watched the conversation unfold like this. The director of the police union says, so, Larry, you know, we got this collective bargaining agreement come up. It's got these features. Can you get the votes for us on the council? Because my candidate is already an incumbent, right? And he says, absolutely, not a challenge. Uh, There's nothing in there I wouldn't agree to. They say, great. One of the cops turns to me and he says, Will, uh, make sure that Larry is available Monday morning and uh, we'll get a couple of squad cars. We'll get the the photo op set up. So... It is clear they're going to endorse him on a handshake and a say-so over a collective bargaining agreement. And we get back in the car, and I said, what the hell just happened? And he said, Will, these guys will tell you that rank and file, they're conservatives, they hate crime, they want to fight crime, they don't like liberals, but they will do anything on a single proposition that once I'm in power, I give them what they want. Raises, benefits, unlimited control of the workforce. And I said, that's cool with you? And he said... It's everything to me. I get into office and then I can do amazing things. You've seen all the amazing things I can do. And it was that moment that, you know, you begin to see the adult Mm. world for what it is, a place where people can say one thing like, I'm a Republican, I'm a conservative, and then can act in concert with a a candidate whose politics are openly hostile to theirs. Just, you know, not even a question. And it was the revelation that maybe the unions I had come to revere as a commie, maybe they weren't unimpeachable. Maybe they were led by very practical and easily corrupted men and women. And I saw that over and over and over again for the next several years while I continued to work in. It wasn't just the police. It wasn't just this particular race in Irvine. you You saw it all the time. I saw you were, you were, it all when you were over. through the looking glass at this moment. This was your moment yes. through the looking glass. Okay. Yeah, and, then of, when, and, when, and when did this conversion to activism, when did this idea crystallize for you that, in your view, the, the key, the biggest key to the biggest door to unlocking the political problems facing California, which we have not yet identified, which you have to identify for us soon, but yet not yet. When did this moment happen where you became convinced that this union stranglehold, public union stranglehold perhaps, or however you want to characterize it, on government was the thing that had to be undone? When when did that conversion sort of finish? Yeah, uh, I I think that the, the... It was probably when I became editor of a uh, lefty, what we used to call them alternative news weeklies. Mm-hmm. I worked for a company called The Village Voice, which you might remember from your days in New York. I read The Village uh, Voice. Yeah. It was the flagship of alternative news weeklies. You know, the first founded in the 50s uh, by um, 
oh my gosh, just a, the, 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 the stars of progressive literary New York City. And uh, the result is I go to work uh, with the company that also owns the LA Weekly in Los Angeles, and they, they fund my startup of OC Weekly. And they, and they were not political people, the business people behind this newspaper. They were just looking for a way to make money. They asked if I thought there were 50,000 people in Orange County, you know, a population then of about 2 million. Could we get 50,000 people to pick up this paper? Because if we can then we can make this thing work financially. That's what they so cared about. the Norman Mailer of Orange County. Thank you for remembering that it was Norman Mailer who helped found uh, the Village Voice. Look at you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And it was while running OC Weekly from 1995 to about, I think I left in 2008, uh, that I would have reporters go out and come back to me, and I would just be incensed as an activist editor of a lefty newspaper. I would be incensed at the inability of government programs to function properly, to educate the kids, to pave the roads, to, to do any of the things, the basic things, to provide for public safety. I was just shocked by the constant reports I got back from my okay. own reporters. Okay, yeah, keep going. Keep, finish that thought. Uh, these stories, you know, that started in 1995. I've got investigative reporters, and they're all committed lefties just like me, and they're going out and they're looking at problems in education. And we always, when we see the failures at this point from, say, 95 to 98, I'm willing to write it off as, well, this is just because there's not enough money in the system. So we start right. to investigate how much money is going into public right. education right. or public safety. And you find out it's just explosive and that the unions are lying about it. So we start writing stories here and there about how the, the Democratic Party and the unions are kind of running cover for government failure. And the Republicans are in on the game, too, because they want the cops, firefighters and teachers on their side just as well. And that everybody's kind of running cover for this this thing. And I'm trying to still pound this square peg of electoral politics, you know, the American uh, left versus right, blue versus red, Democrat versus Republican thing. I'm still trying to see the world that way or as a Marxist, as, you know, class struggle. And it's all falling apart in my hands. None of my ideas about how the world is supposed to work are being borne out by this practical, let's call it field experience of running a newspaper with real investigative reporters. So you're, you are waking up to some mismatch between stated goals, stated conditions, meaning budgets allocated and results. You're pounding this from the left. Undoubtedly, you're getting some blowback. But... Yeah, you could have gone the other way multiple times in the story. You could have, uh, setting aside the, the, the earlier Marxist days, you could have, at the OC Weekly, you could have decided that more money was needed. You could have decided that, that some powerful forces or influential people were stymieing the efficacy of these budgets. You could have created fantastical conspiracy explanations for why the obviously true things that you thought you were seeing in front of your eyes were not true. Um, why there's some hidden forces or some, um, structural problems, maybe racism, maybe whatever else that would be better and superior explanations you chose and were able, certainly your own estimation, perhaps objectively to see things for what they were and realize that perhaps your perception heretofore had been the problem, not that the world was still hiding its ills from you, but that you were somehow mistaken or had been mistaken in your apprehension of what was going on. What 
Was it about you or your colleagues or the job or your upbringing or the moment that prevented you from coming to a gloriously wrong conclusion? <laughs> well, I think this is where my story really is. You know, again, wish I had been knocked off a mule and then talked to you directly by God. Instead, okay. I am Winston Churchill's cliche, right? Of a, what does he say? If you're not a liberal at 20, you have no heart. If you're not a conservative by 40, you have no head. Uh, life was happening to me. Uh, I was running a newspaper. I had employees. So the experience of running a business and looking at spreadsheets for the first time in my life, again, remember, I'm a, I'm a liberal arts major, you know, theology and journalism. I am not a stats guy, a business school graduate from USC. Um, I am not a numbers guy fundamentally, but now all of a sudden I have to be. I have to start looking at the bottom line. So there's one thing there. By this time also, I've got four children. Uh, and... I am starting to raise them in ways that are inconsistent with the ideas I am speaking. I think huh. Dennis Prager says something like they practice what they don't preach, I think is the way huh. that Prager puts it. Huh. Um, this I is, was practicing Prager, in my... Prager you. I'm not, I'm, not a, I'm not very familiar with Prager you except through some light... Uh, consumption of their stuff, and I've met a couple yeah. of their donors. But I'm just Dennis Prager is a conservative, educational activist and business person. I believe is that right? Uh, well, he's he's uh, famously a um, a Jewish scholar. And I'm sorry, um, I don't know enough about Dennis Prager. I really should. Yeah, no, he's fa fascinating guy. But it's that you know we we don't even need to go down that one. I would just recommend okay, people right, look him you. up. Okay. I think he's brilliant. You, you mentioned him. You mentioned him. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. But anyway, yeah, so I don't want to take you're your not, conversation. You're not. You're raising your kids in a way that's inconsistent with how you talk every day. Is that what you're saying? That's right. Yes. Okay. I am and espousing how, what, what one set of... Characterize pardon? it for us. Characterize it for us. What's the difference? Um, the difference is um, that I am willing to indulge a kind of victim ide ideology in my politics, my speaking, my writing. Uh, that in the home, I am absolutely unwilling to tolerate even for a second. No, no victim blaming in our house you know you don't get to say oh well i didn't know or i mean please hear me you know this wasn't a violent uh, gulag or something but no, it was that we course. kept coming of course we, we we kept coming back to the notion that you are 100 percent responsible for your experience here uh, right. you were 100 percent responsible i get that other people did bad things that may have set you up but you had a choice and so wow. here i'm i'm speaking those words in private but in public, I'm saying, you know, the criminal needs to be considered and coddled and weighed against the terrible circumstances of his or her own upbringing. But I'm not willing to extend that kind of thinking to my own children because it would be destructive. It would destroy them as human beings. It would make them non-functioning wards of the state. They would end up in prison, I thought. Is, so, your, is your wife also aware of this distance? Does she share your Marxist outward politics or is she just like on a different, is she apolitical? What's the dynamic there? My wife, um, and I'm speaking softly because I'm talking from our daughter's old bedroom here okay. and she's in the next room, but I, I think my wife would agree with this assessment. She is a non-political conservative libertarian, probably shading much more toward libertarianism, like leave me the hell alone. Uh -huh. um, I'm not telling you how to live your life. You don't tell me how to live my life. So she was tolerant. You know, I don't know how. And she sat through this whole, I would argue, crazy-making transformation. But it occurred gradually. So maybe she was the, the frog in slowly boiling water instead. Fascinating. But she was unchanged. My wife today but, is ideologically. But to be sure, to be sure she's, she's raising 
and wanting to raise your kids in this self-reliance mode, if, if she is of the political stripe that you're characterizing, I surmise that her style of upbringing is consistent with the one that you're observing in yourself at this time. Is that right? Yes, utterly. Okay. And, th yeah. and then you leave the house and you say, everyone's to blame except for the people who are right in front of me, except in my house. Okay, so this this hits you like some dissonance, right? This this forms some dissonance in your in your perception of the world, and then slowly, what happens? Um, a number of things. Um, one of them is that I'm on a public uh, a, a PB an NPR a local NPR station out here in LA called KPCC. I'm on a uh, regular weekly uh, broadcast about Orange County politics and California politics. And one of my interlocutors, one of the, you know, my, my guy on the panel with me is a, a, a really wonderful writer named Stephen Greenhut, who I consider one of the best California columnists around. He's still around, Steve Greenhut. Um, Steve is a libertarian. He was the, you know, one of the lead writers at the Orange County Register, a famously, you know, for a hundred years, a famously libertarian daily newspaper here in Orange County, mm. still around, mm. uh, still libertarian on its editorial page. But it's mm. Green Hut's arguments against me while we're on this show in real time where every once in a while he would say something that would strike me as just irrefutable. He was right. He was absolutely right. I was wrong. And I would say so right on the air. I would say something like, Wow, uh, Steve, you've you've really persuaded me on on that point, and I'm going to have to go back and take a look at that. So one day after one of those public apologies, uh, you know, on my part, you hang up the phone, you're done with the interview. My phone rings. It's Stephen Greenhut saying, "Can I just ask you a question? I've never been involved in a public debate where my opponent was willing to admit that he or she was wrong. What the hell's going on? Is this like some?" Rhetorical strategy of you dug a you hole, get covered off it with leaves. With this guy, you get off the air with this guy. You've known him for a while. You've been on a like a crossfire kind of setup with him multiple <laughs> times. And at some point, you're saying, you know, I hear you. You know what? You have a point there. And he calls you up out of the blue, unprompted, and says, "What the hell is going on?" Yeah, and he's very friendly, you, right? But that, but he's blown away. He's taken with the fact that you're acknowledging frailty. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we all know as adults that is, I guess, for a lot of people, a very difficult thing to do. We all want to be right and liked, et cetera, et cetera. We all have our tribe. And at this moment, you know, I, Steve sees an opportunity that I, I am actually open and curious and I'm trying to be as honest as I can in my assessments. Um and he starts to ask me, like, well, why do you believe the, you know, the kind of the class warfare stuff your paper always preaches? Like, what's, what's up with this? Are you, are you digging a hole and covering it with leaves and trying to lure me into some sort of rhetorical trap that is so strategic I just don't see it? Fascinating. And um, I told him that I, this is very difficult to explain and difficult for me to say, but there is on the left a an attraction to believing that utopia is possible. You can see me unzipping my uh, track top here. I'm getting hot and uncomfortable because I haven't really talked a lot about this. This is a perfectionism question, yeah. Yes. There's yeah. something so, it's like a drug to believe that with the right historical action I slash we as a Borg, as a, I'm sorry, that's discounting it, as a, as a community. That's the, the phrase we would use. Yeah, yeah. There, there's, there's yeah, a collective, that, thank you. 
There's the notion yeah. that as a collective wisdom, a an unintentional society, meaning not a society that is pre-politically aligned with one another. We are happen to be neighbors, right? We're not going to church together. That we can identify what is perfect and then muscle ourselves together towards <clears throat> that perfection rather than trusting individuals or small subsets of the community to determine what is more perfect for themselves and to strive towards that degree of perfectibility on their own. It's sort of the, the, um, the great, um, the great, um, Massachusetts Congressman, gee, it's not Marty Meehan. Um, oh, uh, he says government is the it is the was the word that we give to the things we choose to do together. I'm, I'm That's right. Um, yeah, let's look this that, up. Uh, yeah, yeah. And he writes a famous report for Jewish, Kennedy. Jewish guy, um, terrific uh, and legendary congressman. Um, uh, I think he was. I think. Um, uh, Barney, Barney Frank, I think, is the one who said that. Um, at least I associate the phrase with him. So anyway, uh, yeah, this is the perfectibility idea. And, and the idea is that the government is the one that sort of gets us all on the same page towards that perfectibility instead of communities of intention under the umbrella of a union or a republic. Uh, carry on. I interrupted you somehow. Um, no, no, no. That's that's exactly right. It is this idea that as a group uh, that is able to generate clear paths toward utopia, we're in the vanguard. You know, it is our responsibility to create this moment. You might remember there. You know, this old cocktail party. I don't go to cocktail parties, but um, but if I did, yeah, we would have played. We played this game in graduate school. You know, you're all sitting around holding a beer, and it's after a long day of hardcore seminars about you know, reading Capital or The Holy Family by Engels or whatever, and you're breaking it down and you're, you're talking about, where would you live if you could live anywhere in human history? And I would always say the day of any major revolution, but not the next day. Oh, and wow. for me, it was, you know, the image in like, um, oh gosh, what was the movie called? Warren Beatty's Reds, that moment where you, yeah. in 1970, you, you see the October Revolution. It's these crowds of people just pouring into the street, just animated by this human spirit of connectedness. And we're ushering in the utopia. And of course, what comes next is the gulags, right? The, the yeah. mass murder, uh, the famines, the wars, uh, the Orwellian existence, the dystopia. But there's that sense of un, unlimited human potential. We're building Babel. You know, we're, we're rising to the sky. We're eating Collective from the tree of the mountain. I think, yeah, it's a kind of, yeah. Yeah, it, it is. It bubbles up. Yeah. Very exciting, super thrilling. And Good. so I told Steve that day, Steve Greenhut, when he said, you know, like, why do you hang on to this stuff? And I said, well, frankly, the, the bracing reality of, you know, the cold water ice bath of free markets just doesn't move me. I, I, I'm sorry to say that, you know, I, there's something that I still cling to vestigially to this notion that we're all in this thing together and with the right knob twisting, we can just get it right. And we're going to enter the halcyon days of the future of just limitless beauty and prosperity and truth. And, uh, Steve said, uh, if I send you a book, will you read it? And I said, I guess it depends on the book. And he said, uh, it's called I, P 
Pencil. Have you <laughs> heard of this book? No, I've not. I'm going to look at it right now. Yeah, please do. Um, it's published by a guy who is, at the time is running the Foundation for Economic Education, FEE, it is sometimes called. And I love these guys. They are free market uh, thinkers, philosophers, just wonderful people. Uh, iPencil purports to be the autobiography of a pencil. Uh-huh. Uh, and you'll let me explain it in a couple of sentences before we both yeah. r- go back to my ridiculing it as soon as I saw the cover. Oh, I see. Uh, but the idea is that this pencil is telling you that it is so complicated. It is the product of thousands and thousands and thousands, maybe millions of daily interactions because no single human being could build a pencil. It requires wood from the Pacific Northwest, graphite from mines in, I think it's Wales or Great Britain mm. somewhere. Um, it requires rubber from this from Indonesia, that little metal thing, I can't remember what it's called anymore, that holds the wood to the eraser. That's a thing that has to be manufactured. All this stuff has to be manufactured, and no single individual can produce, harvest, Fantastic. mine, and then assemble these things. No single. It requires workers in the Northwest to chop down wood. Well, what's required of the workers? They have to eat. They need machinery. They need cars to get to their jobs. All of those things are produced in turn by the voluntary actions of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of others. And this beautiful, what would you even call it, Michael? This beautiful network of people just going about their lives, their days, for their purposes to produce a thing individually that will flow into this greater stream of industrial activity, industrial, commercial, artisanal activity. All of these people individually could not produce a pencil. The simplest thing around us, a pencil. You know, they're, they're so ubiquitous, the, the writer says, so ubiquitous that we just we don't think anything of throwing them out before they're used up. They're everywhere. But if we shut down that system of voluntary action, they would become rare and exotic pieces of human technology. Okay. And I thought back in that instance while I'm, first I ridicule the book and I say, oh my God, you gave me a children's book. And he says, read it. So I read it, and the first thing that occurs to me is a story about public housing built in the Soviet Union where hundreds of thousands of flats were built under Stalin, some of which had no bathrooms. Yeah. And so the state went back in and said, okay, we're going to take your one exterior window and we're going to attach an outhouse up there. Plumbing, eh, we'll let it go to the street or whatever, right? You can imagine the human catastrophe that follows. Sure. Never mind totally. the indignities and humiliations and the possibility of cholera. Um, It's just gross. And I thought about that. And it suddenly occurred to me, every day, every American, every human citizen, my brothers and my sisters, every day they get up and they just go do the thing they need to do today to provide their daily bread, they're they're arm in arm with me. They are my brothers, my sisters, and we are unknowingly working toward this goal of taking care of ourselves and our families and our communities. I'm not thinking of saving the world if I go to work in a rubber plantation in Indonesia or a, a, a graphite mine in Great Britain. I'm just doing my job. And I'm not saying that all these jobs are perfect. I'm saying they beat the alternative. They beat the alternative of a place where you have no work or you work directly for people who will shoot you in the back of the head if you don't keep working. Um, they will not allow you to leave or move or anything. I mean, I just, this voluntarism suddenly just seizes me. And this is in the very early 2000s. And all of a sudden I am as we... Early 2000s. That's good to know. Yeah. Yeah, so as as my uh, evangelical friends 
my evangelical my friends might say I am convicted in that moment. I get it. Yeah. Okay, and, that's a long journey. The, the 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 similar story that I heard was, of course, a, fr a friend of mine who, uh, whose father and uh, mother escaped Ceausescu, but his grandfather lived to the very end of Ceausescu, Romanian guy. Um, I met his father said, you know, with heavy Romanian accent, he said that, um, he said, you go to the supermarket here in, in, in the Northeast United States, it's, you see 500 kinds of cereal, it's ridiculous. Nobody needs 500 kinds of cereal. He says, but, but the alternative is worse. If you start to decide through central planning what cereals survive and what cereals don't, you have shortages. Right, and that was the, that was the, uh, that was a very pithy explanation for me because you know imagine that there could be some perfect equilibrium between the number of cereals people need and <laughs> will eat and so forth, but eventually collectively we'll figure it out by accident. Okay, um, we are now at the can moment. I, the can can I just? I'm so sorry to interrupt you. You're the host, please. but I just want to say no, one no, thing. Please, go ahead. Please, please, please. Let's put a pin in that part of the conversation because that tells you that. That challenge, what that friend's, I think you said father or grandfather from Romania said, that clear-eyed, candid, that moral clarity, and I, I do think it's a moral clarity, that has everything to do with what's going on in California today and the great experiment that our state is running on 40 million citizens. But we can come back to that, I so want, please. I want to know, but that's, that's exactly the bridge, and right now we are going to do a surprise... Mm -hmm tradition of finally podcast which is a very good segue tool as well which is ding 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 that is not my voice that is a real bell and we're going to do the speed round of finally with will swain um what is your favorite kind of pizza oh my gosh um well first of all i am uh paralleling my wife on a carb-free diet so right now i don't eat pizza but if i did it's got all the meat that i can possibly assemble on one pizza so meat meat, meat heavy pizza what is yes. the best food at a ballpark uh, Got to be a Dodger dog. Dodger dog. Okay, go on. Yeah. What is the so best for those who don't follow Major League baseball, baseball, is the best kind of ball game? I'm sorry? What's the best kind of ball game? Baseball? Oh, uh, college football, USC. College football. Okay, well, it's very specific. Okay. Uh, Coronado Beach or Zuma Beach? Coronado. It's a terrible opinion. Both great I agree. Wrong. That's wrong. I, I agree, but they're both tragic. <laughs> I, the reason I like it is because Malibu is frozen uh, to some extent, and Coronado has battleships. You know what I mean? Oh, okay. That's a, that's a more intelligent opinion than I was going for. Okay. Will Donald Trump <laughs> be convicted on any of the counts <coughs> now leveled against him before Election Day 2024? Uh, I'm not... This is, I, this is, honest to God, not a cop-out. I don't know exactly how to answer that question. I am an amateur <laughs> when it comes to judging the cases against him. I will Fine. say that some say, of these cases... Who will be president in 2025? Uh, neither of the two major candidates right now. I don't know. Remarkable. Who is your favorite Democratic leader in the United States? Bill Clinton. Okay. 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 Um, do you eat sushi? Yes. Tuna sushi or yellowtail sushi? Yellowtail. Yellowtail or eel? Oh, gosh. Yellowtail. Okay. My people pan don't rolls, eat snakes. Pan rolls or cut rolls? Oh, man. You just exposed my total ignorance. Uh, what's the right answer here, Michael? Don't Tell know. Me. Don't, don't know. Yeah. Speed round. I don't, yeah, I don't, best, don't, what's the best, who's the best governor in California, history or your lifetime? Uh, the best in history, Pete Wilson. Oh, wow. Very recent. Mm -hmm. um, is there anyone you think is woefully underappreciated or overappreciated by the American public today? 
can I say as a group, uh, the framers of the Constitution, the authors of the Federalist Papers? Um, I believe you think they are underappreciated. Underappreciated. Yeah, yeah okay. not well known. All right, so we are now leaving the speed round. Thank you for playing. And we're going back to now the moment in which we're now going to jump to where you have been since the early 2000s. And the, the first thing we have to answer is the question, what is the problem that is ailing California politics? And only after we know what the problem is, not just the presence of money, but what is the problem uh, with this experiment that we're running, as you say, and therefore we can get to the solution that, as you proposed it, what does California Policy Center do? So what is the problem that needs to be fixed, in your opinion? Well, there, there are problems, but let's just say, um, and, and maybe you'll indulge me here for one sec. I think the philosophical problem is the one we just talked about. Your Romanian friends, grandfather, father, that problem of what happens when the government presumes to understand what's wrong with the individual's life and knows how to fix it. Uh, in California, that idea, that progressive idea that we are all just wards of the state engaged in a great experiment to uh, reach human perfect perfection, that's the philosophical problem. If there's, you know, when I was a kid growing up, there was the old line, um, there ought to be a law. Somebody would see some sort of thing that was wrong and they would just toss off, there should be a law, right? And it eventually Correct. became a punchline. Uh, there yeah, ought to be a law. Line. Yeah. But in California, there ought to be a law is how we run everything. Uh, there ought to be a law against poverty. There ought to be a, a law against, you know, uh, not providing people with a home. There ought to be a law about uh, incarcerating criminals. We shouldn't do it. Um, th there's just, utopia is just over the horizon. You know, and if we imagine hard enough, we can see where it is, and then we can chart the course to get there. That's the philosophical problem. The electoral problem, electoral problem, is that we have... <clears throat> a group of people backing that idea who run our government unions. Those cops mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier all regard themselves to this day. My friends, I have two friends who are retired firefighters. They regard themselves as rock rib. They are Trump supporters. You know, they are, mm. they outflank me on the right. Um, I am but, much more about but, liberty. But, but, but they love the idea of their pay, their benefits, their job security, the fact that at 51 they can retire with full pay How and benefits for the rest of their How do they reconcile those two things? How do they reconcile those two things, in your opinion? Yeah, that uh, one through just denial, that, uh -huh. that there's really any kind of conflict there, that, they're, that, that it's their money that's supporting these bad people. But I could you know, give you a chapter and verse of how that actually works out if you'd like. But the fact is, is first is denial. And second, when they really confront the reality of what's up, they just say, well, it's a corrupt system and I'm just doing the best I can to get by. I mean, if the state's going to dump a bucket of billions of dollars over my head, I'm going to try to catch some of it, of course. Uh, so I've, I've, I've had this conversation, you know, my, my friend who's a retired firefighter and still makes in retirement $350,000 per year plus full health care for himself and his wife. If he dies first, she gets the full health care. Uh, this is what the state is paying for. They're paying mm -hmm. for this guy to live the life of a, of a millionaire with asset income of $350,000, basically, you know, passive income, three hundred fifty grand um, per year for the next 30 years. That's what the state is paying for. Fifty thousand dollars per year for the next thirty years. Firefighters, retired California firefighters. Just repeating it to you, retired California firefighters. Average, what get three hundred? Yeah, the median is three hundred fifty thousand bucks on retirement. 
If you go into firefighting for 30 years in California, you can retire after 30 years with your highest level of pay plus lifetime health benefits and cost of living adjustments. The average firefighter in California before benefits makes just under 300000 So you throw in a few extra for those health care benefits. And you're talking close to, I think it's 350000 347 I think maybe the actual number per year per firefighter on average. That's an incredible amount of money in any field. So that would suggest there's a kind of at least a local question. Um, seems to me it's a problem, but doesn't have to be a problem to any, everyone's view, but of a role that no one would expect ex ante would make that kind of lifetime income for 30 years in retirement. But that's a problem that's very local and endemic, or if it's a problem, um, seems one to me, to the union question itself. But you're pointing to a broader problem, and you're saying that the unions are bought off with, they're bought off with large concessions from elected officials. And that purchasing power allows the elected officials to do other things that are, I imagine, more consequential than a relatively small number of people getting a relatively high amount of money per year. What are the broader problems that these, these buy-offs, in your view, enable or facilitate? Well, I'll give you one really concrete example. This is how the prison guard union... Uh, spent about $2 million alongside sheriff's deputies here in Orange County to defeat a very conservative state senator from Orange County, a guy named John Morlock. In doing that, what they did was they backed the campaign of a Democrat who had been all in on defund police. Now, just uh, note the irony. <clears throat> this is a sheriff's deputy group plus California prison guards dumping cash into a candidate, a progressive left-wing Democrat, who says she wants to defund police. Incredible. That's, that's her goal. Um, when I asked the, uh, an acquaintance of mine who was running the campaign for her, you know, I still know all these people, or many of them, he said, uh, you know, Will, the challenge for my guys, and he meant cops, firefighters, prison guards, is that if the conservative got in, he was going to really, he was going to be committed to his let's, engage in some pension reform here, some retirement benefit reform, some pay reform, because otherwise we're going to bankrupt our county, our cities. And he said, if your guy gets in and my gal doesn't, uh, those unions are going to be in some real trouble. That's all so they care though, about. Even though she is saying defund the police, she That's means right. pay them more. And the Republican who does not say defund the police is the one who intends to fund the current police but not the long tail pensions that's correct and wow. keep in mind that defund police is just a proxy for a range of other very progressive initiatives and so when it comes to crime and punishment you can imagine where this woman who eventually beat the conservative candidate uh, who was you know was opposed by all these government unions she's now on the county board of supervisors and in that position she continues to rail against police violence. She continues to talk about equity of outcomes. You know, if there's any, if there's any inequity in the outcomes of any government project, whether it's education or whatever, then clearly this is signs of race, uh, racism rather. We all know this from critical race theory. Mm. Uh, I could go on. 
But it is, you know, we've now got a, a person who, what I would argue, and I don't mean this hyperbolically, just, you know, just based on a record, a person who's a socialist backed by government unions. And so whatever else they may think of themselves as individuals, these cops, firefighters, prison guards, deputies in this instance, backed a candidate who is openly hostile to their, to their, um, their personal politics, but not but their this union is, politics. This is important. This is an important moment. I'm putting on my hand because I, I want to call for a pause. Your major complaint, if I play it back to you, is that the union, the public sector unions are powerful engines of electoral support and that they trade their support, financial, get out the vote, um, votes themselves, they trade their support for augmented or preserved contracts with the state. And that's their dirty bargain. I think that's your, that's your major complaint. Now, would you have this complaint? Would you still have this complaint or do you still have this complaint in those parts of, of California or if California in general, more broadly, were enacting non-progressive or conservative policies? Or is your actual complaint that California is electing progressive people who are passing progressive policy policies and they are the ones getting supported by these unions in this uh, devil's bargain? Uh, that's a, such a great question. Let's see if we can both work on this together. I'm going to say that, you know, what, what I have always maintained is it's simply not proper for government employees to combine in a political effort against the taxpayers who are in fact their employers. That I think that the problem of government unions is a problem of government unions, whatever their policy outcomes. That it is not appropriate for the employees of the, of the taxpayers to become the taxpayers' masters in terms of policy. That's an inappropriate role. The same, let's be really clear, the same contradiction, the same internal contradiction or the same legal corruption does not exist in the private sector to this extent. Why? Mm. Let's look at the UAW strike that's going on now, the United Auto Workers strike that's you know, apparently being resolved, uh, still in the voting stages by members. But, but the bottom line there is in the UAW strikes, you've got labor organizers, the UAW, sitting on one side of the table and they have the interests of their members and their union behind them. They are at arm's length from the people sitting at the other end of the table whom they did not elect. They did not elect the heads of Ford or you know Chrysler, Stellantis, whatever, General Motors. They didn't elect those guys. And those guys have a very distinct interest. Yes, it includes making sure they've got labor peace and productivity, et cetera, et cetera. But it's their bottom line that they're most concerned with. That arm's length relationship does not exist where you have government unions sitting across the bargaining table from the people they helped elect. We have local officials, I'm sorry, local labor union leaders in California on the government union side. I'll, I'll give you one example of the teachers union in Los Angeles. It's called UTLA. That's United Teachers Los Angeles. They the famously tell their members. The United States. That's right. Uh, they famously tell their members every two years, we have a rare privilege. We elect our bosses. Now get out there and get our candidates elected so that when the collective bargaining agreement comes down in 18 months or whatever it is, we're sitting across the peop from the people we helped elect. There's so we nothing. Elect our, the city council members is what you're saying. Yeah, in this case, the school board, right. School board, school board. Yes. Thank you. 
Yeah. So, okay. so, so the other, the other, the other distinction, if we're drawing a distinction, if I'm following your logic here, it's the first time I've heard you say it, is that Ford management and Detroit and other Detroit automaker management, they are bargaining with their own money, meaning the concessions they give to the unions um, or, or upgraded agreements they give to the unions are coming out of their bonuses and somehow the profitability of the shares that they own. The union members presumably own some shares, and so there is a little bit of alignment there, but but by distinction, by by very stark distinction, the the people who are bargaining in with public sector unions, for example, in California, are bargaining with the public's money, not theirs. And so they don't really have much to lose by making these promises to the unions in the public sector. Is that a fair summary of your view? More than fair. I'm going to clip that and make it mine. Okay. So, okay. So look, let's size the problem here. You said that about $2 billion is spent every cycle in California by public sector unions on electoral cycles. Uh, I believe you, I believe that, is it 40% of all public sector union members in the United States are Californians? Is that correct? 25%. Mm-hmm. Sorry, 25%, but 12% of the population is in California. Is that right? That's exactly okay. right. Yeah, 12%. So double the ratio. Okay, double the proportion of the population is the is the population of public sector unions members in the United States. So what are you doing about it? What is the California Policy <clears throat> Center doing about this problem that you think is so acute that is running up major deficits in California that is um, making it very difficult for anything but uh, very progressive policies to be enacted, re- progressive tax policies that may be causing uh, creative, innovative people to leave California, perhaps uh, preventing uh, certain kinds of housing and, and more housing from being built to make housing more affordable. Whatever these ills that, you're, that you perceive, you locate a lot of their source in this 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 rancid bargain between elected officials and public sector unions who I believe uh, not only have a lot of money to spend, but are also enabled through contract to take days off from work and uh, politic, meaning rally and go door to door. That's in their contract. They can leave school and have so many days as teachers to go do politics. Um, so imagine imagine that in your private sector contract. Um, what is it that you do about it and is it working and what other plans do you have to continue this campaign what's worked what hasn't yes let me just take one brief pause before i answer the question about what we do about it and uh, just point out that you've just raised a couple of examples that i think are important to understand the problem of back unions backing candidates on a single issue of union pay and benefits is one problem. The impact on the government agencies that make that bargain, whether it's a school district, a city that pays for firefighting or a county that does or a police department or the state's DMV workers or whatever, the problem is that the taxpayers have to pay this rising fee in terms of pay benefits, early retirements, et cetera, that we've described. And eventually you get to a situation that we have assessed in multiple counties and cities in California, uh, 
where services are cut, staffing is cut, and the city or government agency of any kind, the school district, becomes just a place to collect taxpayer dollars and to disperse them for pay and benefits of public employees and their retirement. Okay. And that's so, it. So, so that, that's a big problem that I think you care about. So the, the, the bargain between the public sector union and the elected officials gets so burdensome that either the city or the county has to go out of business, has to declare bankruptcy, as has happened in Stockton and other places in the United States, sorry, in California before, if I'm not mistaken, or they have to stop paying for actual stuff for actual citizens today, no more road stuff or services or firefighting things, because you're just paying the, the pensions off. You've got this that's overhang. Right. Okay, that's a big problem. What are the other problems you have to characterize? Go ahead. Well, you, you see the rising tide of uh, pushes for local state taxes. You see, you know, California now has the highest marginal income tax rate in the, in the United States, and there's a constant pressure to push for more. We have uh, what we call Proposition 13 protections on uh, residential taxes, you know, property taxes for your home. Uh, those are under constant threat, constant threat. That, that was enacted in 1978, and virtually every progressive candidate says, well, if we just got rid of uh, the cap on people's uh, property taxes and we could just let it float with market rates, boy, we'd be bringing in billions more. Let's eliminate that. So there's this constant pressure to tax people more. And, of course, that makes life more expensive for everybody. The rich can flee or insulate themselves with a good CPA. But the poor, the middle class, the working class are left here. Mm. And mm. I'll give you a very specific example of, you know, the reason I wake up every morning and do what I do is because all four of my kids now live outside of California. And among the reasons they have, among their top two reasons, cost mm. of living. It's just mm. so expensive to buy a house here, to mm. buy gas. We have the, the, the highest gasoline prices, the highest rental and home sales prices. We have the mm. highest taxes just throughout the entire state. The system has made it very difficult, very difficult for the working poor and even difficult for the middle class. So the result is people are fleeing. So I want to ask, you know, I would ask your listeners, you know, in the old days, we used to think, uh, you know, my kids are my social security system. They're going to take care of me just as I take care of my parents. Mm, mm. Well, my four children now live all over the world and they are making no noises about coming back to California. They love us. They love, you know, their surviving grandparents. They love their friends. They love the landscape in California, mm. the beautiful weather. They love this place no less than I do. But they are repelled by the cost of living. My son, who lives in North Carolina, says, Dad, I'm hillbilly rich. He lived in a, with his wife, lived in a studio apartment in Huntington Beach. Um, they moved to North Carolina and instantly improved their, their lifestyles, you know, lowered their cost of living in, and maintained their, um, just improved their lifestyles. I mean, they, they own a home. Okay. Something so, they could not accomplish in California. So that's the direct impact of these policies. Now, now you've located some of the, or source of these ills in the union influence, public sector union influence. What does California Policy Center do about it? We've got probably 10 minutes. I want to make sure okay. that we get a chance well, you, to hear what you do very thoroughly. Sure. Thank you. You reminded uh, everybody, or you mentioned earlier in the show, that um, there was a big Supreme Court decision in 2018, June 27, 2018. The Supreme Court says in a case called Janus v. AFSME, that's Mark Janus, J-A-N-U-S, versus a huge labor union called AFSME, the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. 
And uh, Mark Janice is a state worker in Illinois who just says, like, look, I, I'm paying dues to a union I don't want to belong to. He goes to the union, he says, or he goes to the Supreme Court, and his attorneys say, uh, Mr. Janice's First Amendment rights of speech and assembly have been violated. The government has told him he must fund speech and actions and assemble with people with whom he doesn't likely philosophically or politically agree. That's outrageous. The Supreme Court decides in a famous decision, Janice V. AFSCME, on June 27, 2018, the government cannot, cannot require its workers to join a union as a condition of their employment. Mm -hmm. That very same day in California, as an illustration of union power, Jerry Brown signs into law a new bill that says no government official can talk to a worker about their rights not to join a union. The very mm -hmm. same day. That's not just coincidence. It's not happenstance. Brown saw this coming. The unions got him to sign off on this bill to make it punishable in court. You know, you can be you're subject to a misdemeanor fine um, for speaking about an employee's rights. This is I call this the anti Miranda. You don't have the right to remain silent. You don't have the right to a counsel. Um, this is the anti Miranda. We're not we're going to hide from you your rights. So California Policy Center immediately launched an effort it's a multi-million dollar effort. We're a very small organization, but we've had some very generous donors, uh, particularly those up in Silicon Valley, who helped us fund an effort to use social media to reach out to public employees. Again, cops, firefighters, teachers, and others. And to tell them, you don't have to join anyone. You don't have to pay. You don't have to pay. And there are three reasons these people respond to our message. Um, the number one reason has nothing to do with politics. I get to keep a thousand dollars per year of my yeah, money. A lot of money. It's a lot of money. Where do I sign up? Yeah. Number two is the union's political stuff is outrageous to me. I find it offensive. I don't mm. agree with them. We just had the uh, the teachers union in Oakland come out and say uh, Israel is a genocidal apartheid state, and uh, we side with the Palestinian people and Hamas. Um, I pointed out in my own podcast on Radio Free California, it's called, I pointed out that this is a school district that is broke. This is a school district that cannot teach its children. 10% of their kids do not graduate uh, with minimum expertise in math. Only 30% of them can demonstrate any kind of student achievement on, on English skills, language skills. It's a disaster. It is a school-to-prison pipeline in Oakland. Yeah. So what do they say about uh, teachers? If you can't do, you teach. And if you can't teach, you run a teacher's union. And you then, you know, you stride the globe, the global uh, stages, and you tell people what you think about Hamas and Israel. Hey, we can't teach our kids, but we've got an opinion on uh, international affairs. So that's the challenge. So we're going to use that, or we already have, we use that message to teachers in Oakland. We say, do you like this? Do you like what's going on there? And then though we get a certain number. When, when the United Teachers of L.A. tried this back in 2021 during one of the uh, Hamas rocket fires into Israel, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the UTLA came out and said roughly the same thing. Oh, this is so hard on our Palestinian students. We condemn Israeli apartheid and genocide. Mm. We just sent that message out to teachers in L.A., about 30,000 of them. We got 1,400 teachers out in the space of about 10 days. Uh, and not all with wow. Jewish surnames, mind you. Just people who said, all right, that tears it for me. So yeah. we use the union's antics against themselves. We ask teachers, would you like out because of the politics? Would you like to just save your money? Um, do, you, do you like what your union is doing for you? And, you know, we get a lot of hate mail, but we get a lot more people opting out. And so far, among uh, members of one particular union called Service Employees International Union, that's the SEIU, 
we have now uh, helped about 49, almost 50% of their, their employees, their members out. They have lost. Oh, what do what they cover? Are they the, the, the bus drivers? What's the, uh, yep, what's they the are DMV workers, bus drivers, uh-huh. cafeteria workers, a lot of service jobs in California how government. Many, are, roughly how many union members in California are there and how many do you think public sector union members? How many do you think you have assisted in understanding that they know? And they, well, not assisted in understanding. How many do you believe have stopped paying dues as a function of your efforts, roughly? Uh, the rough number is about 29% of the original number, which was close to 2 million, give or take. Uh, we're now down to about 1.8. Sorry. Good. Go ahead. So it was one point. started about 2.2 million. We're down to about 1.8. So we've reduced it by about um, f- 400,000 people. That's about $400 million per year. And what impact is this having? I'm, I'm aware of some impacts about sort of, I, I think uh, I think one of the teachers unions had to stop politicking or they've gone through some convulsions of, of, of elections and their leadership has stopped politicking or well, you may be. I th- what, give us some summary of what's your impact uh, beyond yeah, the number. Well, I think. I think Michael, you might be thinking actually of SEIU, which had a oh, like okay. an internal rebellion where a um, an outsider candidate of SEIU, a guy named Richard Brown, stepped in and told his members, "We're hemorrhaging members. We're losing revenue very quickly, and at the same time, we're spending tens of millions of dollars in politics rather than just making your lives better. We're going to return the union to member services if you elect me." He is elected overwhelmingly. And what does a union do? They find a friendly state court judge who allows them to change, literally change the locks on their headquarters to lock him out. They accuse him of all kinds of high crimes and misdemeanors. Uh, They go to the same friendly state court judge who says, you have the right to boot this guy out and exert your old school control. And they do. So how are they respected by the members, but then some council of elders boots him? Yeah, the board of directors boots him out, locks him out, literally having accused him of multiple crimes of which he is never convicted, um, which would be crimes. I mean, literal crimes if if he were accused and convicted, but uh, nothing happens there. They just take power. And what do they do next? They hold strikes up and down the state. I could give you examples of bills they have helped pass. uh, Assembly Bill 5, which eliminates uh, freelance workers from being freelancers. Uh, whether you're a truck driver, a performer, you know, an entertainer, um, a, a wedding photographer, a caterer, you likely have to belong to the company that has hired you. You have to be paid as an employee. They want to eliminate freelancing. SEIU does. Why? So they can get more full-time workers and then unionize those workers. They are explicit about this goal. Um, they also pass uh, under Assembly, Assembly Bill 5 is aimed at your friends in the gig economy. But I'm trying to invite you. I'm familiar with those bills, and thank you. But I want to invite you to highlight what you perceive to be some of the good news. So, so you've helped well, 400,000 members stop paying dues. That has must have had some impact because that's 400 million dollars that are not going to or or you know to elections or to uh, rather union funding every year. Something must be happening. What what yes. is there is there a nice impact that that you can point to that you or a promising impact that you yes. can point to so we can hear about it. Yeah, thank you. Uh, what we're finding is lower union spending. We're finding lower, uh, higher rather union debt. They are, you know, basically refinancing the assets they have, including their big, big, their big buildings in Sacramento. Uh, they're beginning their grip on local government is beginning to weaken in some places. We were able to decertify a teachers union at San, a San Diego school this year, in part because 
the union simply admitted they don't have the resources for this anymore. Mm. And we have friends inside the union movement who tell us that this is a constant concern for them. They're trying to balance, you know, how do we stay uh, solvent? How do we stay politically engaged? They are having to make very difficult decisions uh, about whether they're going to play politics. And do you, and do you or, predict or do you perceive yet, w- without giving away confidential yeah. information, do you perceive yet or do you predict that there will come a time very soon when there will be knock-on effects that are concrete and substantive? For example, in this case of this, this school that was decertified, uh, the union was decertified at the school in San Diego, is the principal now free to hire better teachers or fire yes. the worst teachers? And have you seen that kind of thing start to happen in the cities that are now perhaps escaping the grip of some of the worst parts of these bargains uh, between the more miscreant elements in public sector unions and the more opportunistic and uh, perhaps greedy local officials. When that grip is loosened, do better policies emerge or do the worst policies not get enacted? Are you seeing any of these substantive changes yet sure. or not quite? Yeah, I'll give you one quick example. We helped develop a policy called parent notification, and all it does is say that the state has no right to exempt from parents the information about their child uh, choosing, quote-unquote, to transition sexually, to to change their gender. So if a child tells a teacher, a school official of any kind, um, hey, I think I, you know, my name is Sam, I think I might be, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, Joan, Uh, I want to be treated as a girl, I want to use the girl's locker room, under current California regulation, not law, guidance, I should say. It's not even regulation. Under current California law, that, that information is hidden from parents. We said, you have to ask kid, parents for the right to give their kid an aspirin or go on a field trip. Of course you have to tell parents that their child has made this claim that they don't think they're a boy or they don't think they're a girl, and you have a right to know that. Well, the state is a, Im- immediately fired back that we just hate trans children. That's that's our goal here, and that parents can't be trusted with this information because they will murder. Literally, that's the language the state has used. Some parents in some places will harm their children, hurt them, murder them, torture them psychologically if they have this information, so they can't be trusted. Well, we helped um, to inform school boards in multiple places. We helped train candidates for, for school board election. And those candidates have won, and those candidates have adopted this policy. So we now have in eight major school districts about 250,000 families who are protected by parental notification from the state's just crazy interpretation of of the law. That's a, that's a, is the, can you, can you offer up an example of a more meat and potato? Right now, gender issues are kind of, very high profile and perhaps meat and potatoes issue in California or the coasts. But can you offer up a more meat and potatoes kind of example in which maybe a collective bargaining agreement or a permit to construct new buildings or a permit to permission to work freely and not forcibly be unionized or permission to be a freelance gigger or something may have been the day may have been won or the loss may have been forestalled or the vote may have been delayed because there's a little bit of fragility now in the system that was not there before your efforts destabilized this public sector union grip on California politics. Can you, I'm looking for something a little bit more universal perhaps than, um, than uh, a transgender Many people can relate to this desire to know what, what's going on with your kids and not to be denuded of their parental rights by a, 
a political officer at a school who's decided that you're not competent to parent the child because um, the child has said some, uh, some, some magical incantated words. Setting that aside for a second, which is a, a sort of a socially signal issue, is there something that's more meat and potatoes, mainstream every day, that you think is a signal of your efficacy uh, either now or soon? Sure. Um, I think the most impressive one may be that we have persuaded extraordinarily liberal members of the state legislature to finally engage in environmental regulation reform. We call it out here the California Environmental Quality Act or CEQA. Uh, you are starting to hear now the most progressive left-wing legislators in the legislature start to accept our policy. And I mean explicitly policies that we have put together at California Policy Center and have lobbied for that would allow for reform of environmental regulations. The governor himself is now using our talking points explicitly in terms of water infrastructure creation. And what this means is that the union's capacity to help produce policy around environmental law to make sure they get the work has been truncated to some extent. And I, I okay, this would take very, a lot of weedy. That's very okay. concrete. Keep going. Yep. Keep going. Yep. So, yeah. So we're talking here about things like the fact that California is switching to an all electric economy because it's notoriously clean. Of course, it's going to be clean, all this clean new energy, but it's going to require windmills off the coast and uh, all kinds skip, of extraordinary. Skip, skip, so look, I, I skip the cynicism for a second about whether it's clean sure. or not. Right. It's because sure. I, I, I think it may distract Sorry. The, the audience from your the connectivity to what you're doing every day. Um, clean or not, cynical or not, yeah, real sure. or not. We have developed policies. What you've, said, what you've just said sounds important to me because it goes directly to whether you're being effective. What you've just said is that in the past, a policy debate, a policy proposal about a new form of X, new form of energy, new form of housing would be explicitly connected to public sector union or union-based construction and job uh, um, awards and contract awards. And what I think you've just, what I think you've just, I've heard you just say is that now these conversations, these policy conversations can be had without a guaranteed tie or nexus to those union contracts. Is that, did I hear you well? You got it exactly right. Yes. Okay, that sounds so, very non-cynically, very if related to your mission, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Well, thank you. If this were, uh, if you were a paid consultant, I would owe you thousands I'm here just for helping consultant. me sharpen them. I know, but that's why I said if. But if it were, you would be well worth the uh, consulting fee, because you're right. The sharp focus here is that for years, for decades now in California, government unions have been able to say to use environmental regulation to stop a project to build water or electric or whatever. Uh, energy or water uh, infrastructure. They've been able to block it until there was a guarantee that all the jobs would go to government union workers. And now we're starting to hear and, and see bills are getting killed with specifically those kinds of provisions in them. So if you want to build water infrastructure, oh, it must be only like with a, the government. Yeah. Wow. So this okay. means more water. This means greater abundance of water. It means greater also abundance of energy. contracts that are much less expensive. Because, um, the yes, Right. Okay. So, okay, look, we must stop. I'll give you one last chance to say anything that you feel you must say before we wrap up, and then I'll do a little bit of a closing and we'll finish. Sure. Uh, let me just say this. The California Policy Center would not exist without the generous contributions of, of very wealthy Californians and also just small dollar donors. 
Uh, but we really do rely on the kindness of strangers who really understand that there's a problem here that needs fixing and that it can be fixed. And it must be fixed. I mean, all cynicism aside, we just don't really have an alternative. We must save the state of 40 million people. Even among those 40 million, there are people who just hate my guts and think I'm, a, I don't know, a dark lord of the Koch brothers or something. We're saving it for them. We're saving it for our children, our families. But it does require cash. Again, that nearly $2 billion per election cycle. These unions raise more every day than we do in a year. In a day, they raise more than we do in a year. We have made great strides with very little cash. Imagine what we could do with more. If anybody wants to contact me, maybe you'll do me the pleasure of uh, putting something in the show notes about how to reach me and or us. And, I don't uh, do a lot of show support. notes. So just give them, your, give them your contact if you want to. Tell them where to go sure. if you want to. Very simple. Will, like William, W-I-L-L, at calpolicycenter.org. That's will at calpolicycenter.org. Okay, well, thank you that uh, for that, Will Swaim of the Cal, Cal Policy Center, California Policy Center. Um, we're going to stop. Thank you very much for your very arresting and interesting discussion and also your story of your own journey, which is the story of, it's, it's parallel. It's not, not a lot of people who are going to be a priest and now are doing this, but uh, in my experience, but the, the basic arc of your story is more and more familiar to me. I want to say thank you. I'm going to thank the listeners. This has been an episode of Finally. Thank you for listening.